Please, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. As you know, we've been working our way through this great epistle. And it's our great privilege to have the Word of God in our language. And so we take the, our copy of the inspired and errant Word of God and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Our passage is verse 14 through 21. This section is Paul's second recorded prayer for the saints in Ephesus. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, which we've already gone through. Now, before we look into this, just to think about the, the privilege of prayer. Praying for the saints is an awesome privilege. Is every bit as great a privilege as the Word of God. And one of the greatest services of love that we have towards one another is to come before the Almighty and petition Him on behalf of others. There's really probably unequaled service that we can grant, that we can do out of love for another than to go to God on their behalf. And we come to Him, to the Almighty, believing that we are welcome into His presence, that He not only hears our prayers, but is interested in us and can do what we ask. And so as Hebrews 4 would say, that we should come to the throne with boldness to find mercy in the time of need. So before us here in our section of chapter 3 of Ephesians, since it's part of the Scripture, is a prayer inspired by God and is recorded for every subsequent generation to not only read, but to follow. If you want to pray for Christians, let's follow how the inspired writer wrote it down. And so here before us is an inspired prayer for every generation, including us, to follow. Paul's prayer here in this chapter is not only for the church in Ephesus in the first century, but it's also for every church of every century, for every believer. As the previous prayer in chapter 1 was a request... Of, for spiritual illumination to realize the what is ours in Christ. That's the first prayer in chapter 1. The interest was found in verse... If you could go to verse 18 of chapter 1. Just to, I just want to show you this, please. His first prayer, he asked for that we would be illuminated to the to that which is ours already in Christ. And you find the three what's in verse 18. You notice in the middle of verse 18, what is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Verse 19 is the third what. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? So that prayer sought illumination so that we would come to realize the resources that are ours already in Christ. But in this prayer, in chapter 3, if you go back to chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 there, this is this prayer is asking us to have spiritual power in order to experience the who of our salvation. The first chapter was the what. This chapter wants us to know more of who is our Savior. The prayer in 3.14-21 through 21 reveals some amazing realities of the Christian life. I, I see in it a progression from, from like a, a ladder, like steps that go upward and climax in verse 19. It progresses from the Spirit's work in verse 16, and it ends up in verse 19 with being filled up to the fullness of God. That is the climax. 
And in this prayer, I, I see three petitions in particular. Three petitions here. And I don't see them as separate, unrelated, but they are like, as we just mentioned, steps of a ladder. Each request is related to and builds on the previous, and it climaxes in verse 19. Now, before we look at this, um, just a, a broad overview. Note some things to observations to make. First is the Trinity's involvement. In verse 14, you have the Father. In verse 16, you have the Spirit. In verse 17, you have Christ. So it's Trinitarian, just like chapter 1 was Trinitarian in our redemption. Secondly, just as an observation, notice where this takes place. In verse 16 in the inner man, in verse 17, in your hearts, verse 19, to be filled up with all the fullness of God. And I think it's worth noting, and I'm really battling my temptation to run off on this, maybe for a later study, but just to mention this here, that Christianity, true Christianity, is about the inner person. True Christianity is about the inner man, is about the heart. Okay? God is always rebuking the hypocrite for the act that's outside, but the heart's not there. True Christianity is about transformation. It's transformational. It's the power of God inside a man to change him. And God is about changing the inside, and the pressure and the impact of that will change the outside. But God's interest, as we learn here, and where God's power is taking place is in the inner person, in the inner man. And that's true Christianity. It makes it different than any other religion on the planet um, is that it takes place and actually does something on the inside. Okay? That which was once dead is made alive and so forth. We know that, but this is fascinating to me that it's the inner person, it's the inner man that is being, this is where these things are taking place in this prayer. So I find that exciting. But I'm going to leave it there and move through this prayer here. As we examine this prayer in 3.14-21, I want us to see the three petitions. Verse 16, the first petition is to be strengthened, as you see it there in the middle of the verse, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. That's the first petition. The second one is found in verse 18. It's to be, my NES says, maybe able to comprehend. That, that's a petition. That's the second one. So it's the strength to comprehend with all the saints. The third petition and the climax is verse 19 is to know the love of Christ. So those are the three petitions that make up the prayer. That which follows, like verse 17, are the results of the petition. So you have three petitions with results that follow. As you look at verse 14 through 21, let's read and then we'll work our way through here. The Word of God says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then the conclusion 
found in 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Glorious. Glorious. Now, back up to verse 14. To remind us, notice how it starts. For this reason... That takes us back to chapter 3, verse 1, because remember, he's, 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 he interrupted his prayer in chapter 3, verse 2 through 13 to tell more about his ministry. He was so moved by what he had just finished saying in chapter 2 that he was going to launch into a prayer, but he interrupted that in verses 2 through 13. Verse 14, he's returning to that which he was going to do in verse 1. For this reason, then, takes us back to the end of chapter 2, which primarily speaks about about the glorious privileges that belong to both Jews and Gentiles. For instance, just read the last two verses of chapter 2. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 22. In whom you also, Jews and Gentiles, are being built presently together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So both Jew and Gentile, the church, is made up of those who are the dwelling place of God. That so moved Paul, he says, for this reason, then we come to our verse 14, for that reason, the unity and the equal privilege of Jew and Gentile in the church, I bow my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. Now notice, there's no command in Scripture to the posture of prayer. So we don't get too carried away with this. Um, Godly men are shown praying standing, head down, head up, arms open wide, clutched hands on their face, on their bed in the middle of the night, early in the morning. So don't say there's a command to a godly, righteous posture for prayer because you'd be a heretic. Okay, and you'd be a Pharisee. God is looking at your heart anyway. (laughs) Right? But what this does show, though, is really, if he's going to make a point to emphasize the posture, it's showing just how intense it is to him and just how he's moved by what he's about to say in that he is bowing his knee before the Father. Okay? Um, the only other place this word is used in the New Testament is in Philippians 2, where every knee will bow. Okay? So it has this idea of a submission between, before someone great. And the Apostle Paul comes before, notice in verse 14, the Father. Now this is fascinating because there's prayers to the Son, there's prayers to the Spirit recorded in the New Testament. But in Ephesus, the primary acting person in the redemption is the Father. Okay, and so here's Paul going to the Father, and before has has this idea of coming to the presence of. He's coming, he's coming into the presence of and before the Father, and he's bowing his knee out of submission and humility and stunned by what he's just been talking about in that Jews and Gentiles are together in the church before God as a dwelling place for God, and he comes before the Father and bows the knee, and he's laying there in, in, in his heart, in his mind, he's, he's intentional, consciously in the presence of God. We should do that. Do you pray just out of just rote carelessness and have no really... It's almost like a sanctified imagination, isn't it? It's based on truth. But use your sanctified imagination. I think Paul does. Because he's not really in the presence of God in the sense in heaven. He's on earth. He's in prison when he does this. Chained to a guard. 
And he's probably not kneeling down. Maybe he is. Calvin said he was, but Calvin wasn't there. So, you know. Um, he's chained to a guard. He's using his sanctified imagination. He is intentionally conscious of the presence of the Father. And he sees himself coming in such a humble way that he bows the knee before the Father. Right? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of the saints. And he comes before the Father in his presence, man. And and what's even greater... Pay attention to the details, because look at verse 15. He's going to further describe the Father. He doesn't have to do this in verse 15. I think this is fascinating. Verse 15, he says like this, "...from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name." Now, there's discussions on what this is really meaning and saying. Um, there's those. The first one that I'm going to mention is I don't believe is true, but it's basically speaking that the Father is the, the, fa- the universal Father of every human being. right? The universal fatherhood. Well, He is in the sense of Creator. Okay, He is, as it says in uh, Acts 17, right? we're all His offspring. So in one sense, He is the Father of all human beings in that He's the Creator of all. But that doesn't fit this context. He's our Father, particularly through redemption, through grace, adoption as sons. Okay, So we, He is the Father of all who are redeemed, of all who are saved. And I believe it's mentioning, look at 15, it, the, the word every could be whole. So from whom the whole family in heaven on earth derives its name makes more sense to me in this way, that God is the Father of all who are redeemed, whether they are in heaven and on the earth right now. There's, he is the Father of the redeemed. Okay? It's interesting because Paul doesn't need to make those details known in this verse to make sense to us. So he's emphasizing the unity. Remember, Jew and Gentile, we have the same Father who's in he- the believers in heaven or the believers on earth church triumphant, church militant, right? Have the same Father, be you Jew and Gentile. And this is to whom he's bowing before in his mind, consciously. He is intentionally before this Father, who's the Father of all, the saints in heaven and the saints on earth. And he's going to then make this request. As you notice in verse 16, he comes in verse 16 and says, So that... Reason, He, the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. This is cool. (laughs) Right? Here's the first rung or the first step that's leading to the climax of verse 19. It's beginning here where Paul makes a request. And notice what the request is based on. On in the middle of verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. Paul is saying that I'm coming before the Father, I'm making requests that he, according to the riches of his glory, would answer my prayer. Glory. Great New Testament word. Speaks of brilliance in the New Testament. The kavod in the Old speaks of weightiness, a heaviness, a greatness, right? The New Testament doxa has this idea of radiant brilliance. You put it together, the, the glory of God is the sum 
the sum of all his attributes, of all his perfections, all as a whole, together, is radiant, brilliant, weightiness, majesty, glory, perfections. He's saying the God of glory, the God who's most glorious, the God who's infinite in glory, according to the riches of that glory, riches is wealth, according to the, 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 the wealth of that glory, according to is this idea that it's in proportion to, not out of. In other words, if I'm a billionaire and I have you know, infinite, almost infinite riches, billions of dollars, if I give out of my wealth, I might give you a hundred bucks. That comes out of my poke, you know, here. But if I give in proportion, I might lavish millions on you. And millions. Because it's in proportion to what I possess. Do you see what Paul's saying? To, this is recorded for my encouragement. This is recorded for the first century church to meditate on the Father to whom he bows before is all infinitely glorious. And according to those riches, in proportion to his greatness, he then asks him to answer this prayer. Which is to say, it should, it's to encourage us that God is going to answer according to the prayer because it's nothing to him. He's not going to stress his bank account, right? And look at what it says here in verse 16. It says, according to these riches of his glory, possession, to be, this is the request, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power. Fascinating. So the first request of the apostle for the believers is to have strength. Power. What's that first thing it tells me is I need that. Or I would be asking it. I need strength. I need the power. Notice who the power is from. What's the channel of the power in verse 16 is His Spirit. Of course, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, Third person of the Trinity. Co-eternal, co-equal in everything with God. He is God. So He's saying, God the Father, out of His infinite riches of His perfections, that He would then provide the Holy Spirit in this way here, that I am strengthened where? In the inner person. Okay? In the inner person. Now it's interesting that the word power here, we're strengthened with power through His Spirit. If you go to Galatians 3, please, hold your finger in Ephesians, go to a few places here. Often in the New Testament... Power and the Holy Spirit are synonymous. They're, they're, they're almost appositional. They're the same. Look at verse uh, 3, verse 5. So the power so to, to work the, the, the miraculous deeds of the first century comes from the Holy Spirit. And they're called works of power is why I'm going to these verses. Chapter 3, verse 5 of Galatians. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit, same one of Ephesians, and works miracles among you, if you go to your bottom of your text and you see the subscript number there, you notice that the Greek word could say this, works of power. So the one who provides you with the Spirit and does works of power among you, does he do it by the work of the law or the hearing by faith? My point is here that the Spirit is connected to the works of power. Okay? Now from there, go to uh, Luke chapter 1, please. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Gospel of Luke chapter 1. You're going to notice the power of the Spirit here. 
is so powerful that it can cause conception when there's no human father. It's fascinating, right? It's how powerful the Spirit is. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 35. You know this text very well, but notice, what it's, notice the connection here. The angel answered and said to her in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. There you see again the connection of the Holy Spirit and power. The Holy Spirit is associated with power. Go to Acts chapter 1, a couple places here. Acts chapter 1, you know this verse very well as, as well. Look at verse 8. After the Lord taught, the resurrected Lord taught His disciples 40 days about the kingdom of God, and they asked, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He says in verse 8, after He says, it's not for you to know the time, He says in verse 8, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay? So the connection there again with power in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power to live a life for God. And the, the power takes place, as we learn from Ephesians, if we go back to Ephesians, the power is in the inner person, the inner man. It's fascinating. Verse 16, right? He's asking the Father in proportion to His glory to, to strengthen the believers with power from the Holy Spirit in the inner man. In the inner man. The ministry of the Holy Spirit from this text is primarily in the inner person. Okay? Now, the inner person as opposed to the outer person. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says that our outer man is decaying and dying daily, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. So the inner, that's who we really are. Okay, This is still in, housed in unredeemed flesh and is getting old and frail and, and I feel it every day. But the inner man is being strengthened every day by the Spirit. And that's what Paul's praying for here. That the Spirit would come and provide the power in the inner man. Now, we... We want to be clear here that what Paul's praying here, he's not saying that God provide the Holy Spirit as though they didn't have Him. Because at the moment of conversion, every single regenerate person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 would say, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. So there's no such thing as a truly born-again person who doesn't possess the Holy Spirit. Okay. Are we not the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 6.19, in many places that we are the dwelling place, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. So this prayer is not for the Spirit to come as though they didn't possess Him. But what is this asking about then? For the power of the Spirit in the inner person is more the petition like uh, 5.18, which says this in Ephesians 5.18 where the command is to be filled with the Spirit. So they already possess the Spirit as you and I do. But the prayer request is that the power from the Spirit in the inner man would give us strength. So it's, it's more the idea Father, the Spirit would have more control. That I would be walking in the Spirit. That I would be in step with the Spirit. That I would be filled with the Spirit. 
He's the power of God. And it's, in the inner, and it's providing strength in the inner person. So it's right there. This is the first step, okay? And it's strength in the inner man, inner person, okay? Back to chapter 3, if you wandered away. Look at the result of this in verse 17. The result of this, the strength provided by the Holy Spirit, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's fascinating. It's, it's kind of odd at first reading, isn't it? I thought Christ already dwelt in our hearts. Well, He does. You'd be right. Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ, I hope, lives in me. No, it says lives in me, present tense. He lives in me. He lives in you. Romans 8.10 would say the same thing. Through the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Christ, dwells within every believer. I think we lose track of that sometimes. Saturday morning, you even mentioned, you know, you kind of emphasized that God dwells within us. That's an amazing, stunning, that should absolutely stun me, reality. We're the only people on the planet. The privilege of the church is that we, our inner person, is for a fact the inner sanctuary of the living God. That's amazing. What a privilege. And Paul is praying that God, the Spirit, would come and and have more of me, in the sense, fill me and strengthen me. And through the strength provided by the power of the Spirit in my inner person, is that the second person of the Trinity, verse 17, would dwell in my hearts through faith. Now, He came to dwell in you the moment you were converted. So again, what is this meaning? It's something extra. It's something different, if you will. Well, I think it's found in the Word. I think it's found in the Word dwell. In all the reading and stuff I could do on this, the, 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 the original term that's translated dwell in verse 17 is this idea to live inside, to inhabit, but with this added nuance, being settled down, even comfortable within, or some commentators said, Christ is at home in your heart. Not just dwelling there, but that He's actually at home. He's settled down in your heart. In your heart, verse 17, is parallel to the inner man of verse 16, where the Spirit is working here. So then, in our heart, in our inner person, and let's get this right, okay, the heart that's mentioned in the New Testament obviously is not the muscle that beats and pumps blood but it's synonymous with the spirit with the mind often the mind is correlated with the, with the heart it's the immaterial part of us it's the place where, the, where God the spirit dwells Okay, in our very inner person in our heart that Christ may be at home in your heart isn't it interesting? How is that? What's the channel in verse 17? What's the means by which Christ is settled in your heart? Do you see it in 17? What is the channel? Faith. How crucial is faith? Absolutely. We're saved by faith, justified by faith alone, saved by grace through faith. But this is faith that continues to walk with Christ. This is faith that continues to trust Christ. This is the faith of the believer. Okay, now... After justification. This is, we walk by faith, not by sight faith. Okay? This is glorious. Now, now get this. Faith is, uh, maybe a better translation would be trust. 
Okay, we often throw faith out there and it can mean whatever you want it to mean, but trust has a little more point to it. New Testament pistuo is this idea of faith, trust, to trust in Him, okay? So at conversion, God granted you and I faith in Christ, Ephesians 2.8, but the personal, this personal trust in Christ since that time is not static, it's not stale. It fluctuates, doesn't it? It grows strong. There's days I am, I am strong in faith and I'm nine foot tall and bulletproof. Right? And then there's days I'm about a mustard seed. In fact, it's not even that big because I can't move mountains. Right? So my personal trust is like this. This is what's being emphasized here. The Spirit is being requested to come in power to strengthen my inner person so that my trust in Christ grows stronger. And as that happens, Jesus Christ is at home in my soul, at home in my spirit. He's praying for the church. We should pray that for all of us. As this happens to us, we're better Christians, we're better fathers, we're better husbands, we're better neighbors, we're better brothers, we're better people. You see? Because Christ is at home in our soul, in our heart. Now think about this, this faith that's being strengthened. Because our faith does this, often is weak. When we are weak in faith, we see the circumstances as greater than Christ, don't we? Wherever our circumstances are, when we're weak in faith, we see them as greater than Christ. We are, the pressures of the world crowd in on us. And we think God has abandoned us. We fall prey to doubting God's goodness, His love, His power, His wisdom. We fall prey to temptation to sin, to get ahead of God and fix it for Him. Like you were, uh, Mark, you were sharing about Abraham. That's because he didn't have faith, right? He didn't trust God fully. He's learning how when he went to Hagar, right? That's the same thing. When we're weak in faith, we get ahead of God. We think we need to fix it. And we live according to the pressures of the world, according to our own lustly flesh. Weak in faith, think of this, fears everything and everyone but God. When you're weak in faith, you fear everyone and everything but God. And you're manipulated by what you fear. As James says, we are tossed to and fro, James 1.5. We don't see Christ as very glorious when we're weak in faith. Oh, we have faith. We're saved. You can't lose that faith that God gave you. This, has, this is not talking about salvation. This is your walk with Christ afterwards. See, we begin to trust ourselves when we're weak in faith. We, we trust in our own abilities. There's a great illustration. Can we turn to Matthew 8 to see this? Matthew 8. There's a great illustration here. After a lot of ministry, our Lord... Gets into a boat in Matthew 8. Very familiar text, I know, but there's two verses that I just want to pick up on and look at this. The Lord of creation is in the boat with you. Just picture that. The Lord of creation, the sovereign one, the omnipotent one, is in the boat with you. Okay? And you get in verse 23 of Matthew 8. When he got into the boat, that is the sovereign Lord of creation, just so you're reminded who we're talking about, (laughs) and his disciples followed him, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. Jesus was so worried, 
He was sleeping. Whoops. Right? I mean, think, get the picture. Use your sanctified imagination. I hate water and I hate the sea. I would be scared absolutely to death. I'd rather fight a grizzle bear than a shark any day. Verse 25, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. <laughs> Amen. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of what? Little faith. They have faith, but it's little. It's so little. You see how the circumstance made them kind of stupid? The Lord of creation is sleeping in the boat. You think you're going to perish? You see, that's the, that's the idea here. Here's So you of little faith. He got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Okay? That's fascinating. This is what we're talking about. This is what Paul's praying about. That our, our little faith would be strengthened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. It takes the power of the Spirit to do that, apparently, because that's what he's praying for. And as a result, the second person of the Trinity is at home in my heart is my faith is strengthened by the Spirit. I have a greater trust. Just to stay in this situation here in Matthew, I would believe that I'm okay because the Lord of glory is with me. That would be evidence that I'm trusting, you see. And the res- staying in Ephesians, the result of that kind of faith would be Christ is settled in my heart. He's, he's at home in my heart. In Matthew, there's another great place here. Back to the centurion. Where is that? Earlier in the chapter, um, look at this here. Lord, I wrote this down for a reason and I lost track of it. Um, oh, look at 8, 9, and 10. Chapter 8, look at 9. Remember the centurion? His, 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 um, his servant is paralyzed at home and fearfully tormented. Um, verse 8 of chapter 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. What's being... What's being evidenced there? Faith. Faith. Just say the word. This is, by the way, this is a non-Jew. This is a Gentile. (laughs) Centurion. Verse 9. For I also, notice, this is awesome. I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Do you see what he's equating? Whatever Jesus says happens. Verse 10, And when Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who have followed, Truly I say to you, I have not found such what? Great faith with anyone in Israel. So you got little faith in the boat, great faith in the centurion. This is the idea that, go back to Ephesians please, that I, I think Paul is trying to get us to see in this recorded prayer is that the Spirit is the source of the power to strengthen our inner person, which in verse 17 is that Christ, the second person, would be at home in my heart as I grow in my trust in Christ. That'll preach. (laughs) That's good stuff. But then we have to move on, though, because look at what else it says here. In in the middle of verse 17, which the second half of verse 17 is 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 connected to verse 18, but notice what how he finishes verse 17. As Christ dwells through faith, notice here that you being rooted and grounded 
in love. This is interesting. This, this is the basis of the next request, but it's connected to Christ dwelling in your heart. Okay? What is, it's important to see that the word being rooted and grounded... Now listen, this is grammar. I know it's, I know it's warm in here and you're, I'm going to have to wake you up, but uh, grammar. This is a perfect passive. Both of these are perfect passive. Perfect is a past act, something that happened before that was perfectly completed, no, nothing left undone, and then the ongoing results to this very moment. So this is something that happened to them in the past perfectly, and it stays in that condition all the way. So it speaks of a permanency. Passive is, as opposed to active, the subject is being acted upon. So this is saying that the believer has been acted upon, obviously by God, and when they were converted, they were firmly rooted and grounded in love. Obviously God's love. Okay, And that's what's going to take over the rest of this prayer. This is just the soil, if you will. He uses these... You know, these agriculture mixes metaphors, Paul does all the time. He can get away with it. Uh, but to be grounded is a f- word for foundation. To be rooted is, is agriculture, it's a plant deeply rooted. The soil, then, in which the Christian is embedded is love. And it's God's love for you. Your love for Him is not worth mentioning, frankly. Neither is mine. We're not really, if we're rooted in our love, we're not very stable. Because what do you get from a permanent, firmly rooted and found, foundation? What's the emphasis here? Is stability. Paul is emphasizing the stability of the believer. And this is outside of subjective feeling. This is objective truth. This happened the moment you were converted and you stay in that condition. You never become unstable because it's God's love that holds you. Your your confidence in that is what fluctuates. But the reality of being embedded in the love of Christ is a fact. And it's rooted in God, you see. He keeps you. Even when you don't feel saved, if you're really saved, you are saved because God's the one who keeps you. Okay, so here in verse 17, having been rooted and grounded in love, that leads to verse 18, and the second petition of Paul is this, and and it progresses, okay? He goes, now, to be able to have the strength to comprehend... That's the next request. To have the strength, to have the might to comprehend. I think it's fascinating that it takes might. It takes strength to have strong faith. It takes strength to comprehend. It takes the strength of the Spirit. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to grant me a greater trust in verse 18, to comprehend. Okay? The word comprehend means to grasp mentally an idea. If you comprehend something, you've studied it, and you've kind, you've kind of got your hands around how this thing works. You know the great illustration for me is Max and this thing he put together, man. Right? He goes and searches it out, and, and he's got it in his mind, and he comprehends it. He hasn't experienced it until he got here and started working with it, and he's still learning his Antino back there, you know. 
But before you start operating, it's comprehensive, right? This is what he says here in verse 18. I'm praying, Paul says, that you have the ability from the Spirit to comprehend. And notice what he wants him to comprehend in verse 18 is the expansiveness or the greatness of the love of God. To get your head around. To get your head around the... The full dimension. I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't get too carried away with the dimensions. I think what he's saying there is that it's so grand. It's just so big. You can't, you can't go beyond it. You can't go around it. You can't fathom its depth. The love of God that you're rooted and grounded in is that which He wants you to begin to comprehend. And I think believers, in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I would say that primarily, if not 100%, certainly 99.9% of the people that I minister to, they need, they have troubles because they lose track of the love of God. True love, not Caleb love God, but true biblical love of God. They lose, they, they don't believe. They, they, they remember weak in faith, and, and so you start to doubt God's affection and God's love, and you, and you start acting sinfully, stupidly, unchristianly. But if you could convince that person to whom you're ministering of the breadth and the height and the width and the depth of the love of God, which they are already embedded in, you see, that's his request. So, the two requests is to be, verse 16, strengthened with power by the Spirit and the inner person, which we connected, verse 17, is that strengthening of our faith, our trust, so that the second person of the Trinity, Christ, would feel at home in our heart, and we grow in that trust, we grow in our, in our faith in Him and His goodness and His glory and His per- person. And as we do so, he says, I want you also to have the strength to have a mental comprehension of that which you're already embedded in. It's already yours, firmly rooted and grounded, already, permanently. And I want you to understand this comprehensively. And then that leads to verse 19 and the third petition, which gets really good. He says, and to know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ. Wow. Um, Glorious. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This, This love which is of Christ from Christ. This love from Christ. The word to know here is this idea of experiential knowledge. It's to know by experience. If verse 18 is knowledge comprehension, verse 19 is then putting into action what you learn in verse 18. Kind of like Max and Tino's stuff here. You know, you study it out and you got it. I got it in my mind. Now I need to put it into action to see how it works. That's what he says here. Verse 19 is putting it into action. How else are you going to know the love of God except by experience? And how are you going to experience? He's going to thrash you. He's going to put you in a corner. He's going to just put stress in your life. He's going to bless you and everything in between. Everything He's going to do in your life, He's going to do it so that you have an experiential knowledge of His love for you. That's what He's doing in your life. 
He'll make us sick. He'll make us healthy. He'll make us rich. He'll make us poor. He'll, he'll break our leg and He'll make you nine foot tall and bulletproof. All that you come to this experiential knowledge of His love for you. Right? That's good stuff. Amen? That's good stuff. And this is what He's praying for. This is the will of God. This is an, this is an inscripturated prayer for every subsequent generation to study, to look. What, am I, what should I get from this? Now how should I pray for you? This is the will of God for the saints to know the love of Christ. Think of this just for a moment. This is just an incredible, incredible truth. To, to take the conceptual understanding of verse 18, to move into the experiential knowledge of verse 19... That experience is like what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 3, to taste of the Lord and to see that He's good. Only Christians can do that. Only Christians have done that. Only God's children have done that. But we, we taste of Him. Don't you love... See, Scripture uses sanctified imagination. Right? I've tasted of Him. And so have you. From the first time of conversion, we, we're tasting a little bit, but we keep coming back if we truly have tasted. And He's strengthening our faith by the power of the Spirit in the inner person so that Christ is settled in our home, in our hearts, and He wants us to have the strength to comprehend the full orb and vastness and infinite. We can't know all of it, but you begin to see it, just how big God's love is. And then He says, I want you to experience that which you have in your mind and that's by going through life and I want you to taste of his love right this happens as you experience life as a believer you have the beginning right understanding of Christ's love when you heard the gospel God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and you believe that and you see the love of God in the cross you learn truths as you are taught in classes and, and at, at church you are taught the unfathomable riches of Christ. You're stunned by His greatness as you begin to learn these things. You, you learn, you, you know, conceptually, if you will, of the mercy of God. It's like teaching your children, right? You're teaching them truths that later on they're going to experience. It's the same thing. The conceptual love, knowledge in 18 is then going to be put into practice as you mature, as you grow, as you live. And so the unfathomable riches of Christ, you're learning these things, you're stunned by His greatness, His mercy, His grace, His love, His power, His wisdom. You're stunned by the cross, that God became a man and went to the cross. You're stunned by the resurrection, that He's alive, He's ascended to the right hand, He's coming back for me. I hope He's coming for you, He's at least coming for me. <laughs> You're stunned by all that. You're, and the many promises made in the New Testament for those who believe, the promise of daily provision and protection and future glory. That's all the love of God. You're, you're, you're learning that in your mind. It's conceptual. And all of this is at first, right? But doctrine, at first, it's comprehended. It's in your mind and you believe it. Praise God. But Paul prays that you and I would know by experience that which we know doctrinally. It's not enough to hear. God's going to put it here. 
As you live this faith out in this fallen world, you experience many trials, tribulations, and sufferings, and sorrows. And through them, you begin to experience that which you have learned in the classroom. Right? You begin to learn what it means that God is sovereign. Yeah, I, as the first sermon I ever preached was God's sovereignty. I didn't have a clue what that meant other than He's in control. I know more now than I did then, but I still don't know nothing. Right? I knew of His love then because I believed in the cross and that I was a sinner and He died for me. But I know much more now than I did then. The verse hasn't changed. I have changed. God has taken me down into the depths so that I have tasted Romans 5, 8, I have tasted. God has demonstrated His love for me that while yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Right? This is what Paul's praying for. And as we live this out, this faith in this world through the sufferings, and we begin to experience that which we have learned, His unfailing love for you becomes an experience. Doesn't it? It is in those darkest nights and lonely places that His love shines the brightest. You, pro- you then proclaim His love like the psalmist when you say His love is everlasting and endures forever. You know that by experience. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I can say that with great conviction and so can you. And tomorrow He's going to put you in some place in life where you're going to learn that even greater. You'll know that even better. More pure. More purely. These things come into our lives to prove His love. Psalm 23. I I just live in this text many times. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because He is with me. He's with me for my good. He's with me for my provision and my protection. Right? He's, he's with me in love. And I learn His love greater when He puts me in those tight places. You know what I'm talking about. As we trust Him in these many trials, we experience His affection for us, His commitment, His devotion to us. When we are disciplined for sin, we experience His love. Because He only disciplines those whom He loves. When He answers our many prayers, we experience His love. You know why? Because He only answers the prayers of the saints. He's not listening to the pagans. We cannot fully exhaust this experience of His love. Because in Ephesians 3.19, notice what He says about this love of Christ. That you're growing in this personal knowledge. Look what it says. It surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond. You know what this is saying here? That the experience that you have of the love of Christ right now, the love of Christ is beyond it. You haven't tapped it out. You haven't exhausted the sponge of the Christ's love. Oh, it's all dry now. Dang, gotta go somewhere else. No, it's beyond, right? The word is hyperbole. Paul's favorite term in Ephesians, man. It's gone beyond. It's, it's, it's hyperbole for us because we're limited. But when it's used of God, it speaks of His surpassingness. His love surpasses any experience you and I can have. That's why heaven is, can't be exhausted. Because it's always beyond. We're going to be always learning about 
God and His greatness, and that would include His love. It cannot be exhausted. The, the, the hymn writer said the ocean, right? You couldn't, the, the ocean cannot tap out the love of God, right? Um, the love of God would run the ocean dry. Paul's praying that we would know that. That we would know His love for us. And don't question His love. It surpasses our knowledge. There's more to be had. You know, the, the exhortation right, that comes off of this is keep pursuing Christ. So many believers are satisfied with where they are in their walk and how, how sad that is. Are you kidding me? You think that however long you've walked with the Lord now, you have tapped Him out and you are satisfied. No. God has so much more to show us. And you know what He'll do? He'll give you a disease. He'll bring suffering and trials to prove to you there's more of me you need to know. Because there's more of me I want to show you. Because I love you. <laughs> right? It's love from God. And He wants to show us these things. In verse... I need to finish here. Look at verse 19. The result of this knowledge of God's love for us is the climax of this thing. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, I'm not sure I can get my, my pea brain around this. All the fullness of God... Look at how he piles things on. I mean, fullness, you got, you're, you're up here, full. And all of the fullness is that which he is the result. We will be filled up to all the fullness of God. Wow. Look at 4.13 for a minute. Paul likes this word. Ministry that he's mentioning here in verse 12, equipping the saints, verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, notice the progression, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs, notice, to the fullness of Christ. Ministry's goal is that Christians achieve the fullness of Christ. That's what this is saying here. Okay, In 5... 18, we've already mentioned this, but the command is to be filled. Play Romans, the verb. um, To be filled up with the Spirit. Okay? So, and then back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul likes this kind of language. We don't have an extravagant enough vocabulary. We need to talk differently, right? About God. Look at 23 which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ. So think of this. How is that? Christ, in His perfections, is made manifest by His body. The invisible Christ's fullness is permeates, fills His people, and we give expression to who He is. So that when we love, 1 John 4 language, when we love, we see the invisible God on display, in person, if you will. We are the body 
of Christ so that when we are yielded to the Spirit, when Paul's prayer is coming to fruition in Ephesians 3, what is happening when we're all filled up to the fullness of God, when the world looks at us, when we look at us, what we see is a manifestation of the invisible God, the invisible Christ, is, is brought to life. Not only individually, but individually together give this corporate whole of we see the person of God. And this is talking here in verse in 319, to be filled up to all the fullness of God. This, this idea is that God comes, His very presence in our inner person, and He then, think of this, if we're being filled with God... There's an influence, there's a, there's, a, there's a pressure, if you will, that conforms, that moves that which is filled. In other words, if you're filled with anger, how do I know you're filled with anger? Because you're throwing rocks at me, right? You're cursing at me. If you're filled with joy, I like happy people, right? If you're filled with joy, I see it in your face, I see it in our interaction, right? If you're filled with God, how do I know? You have God-like characteristics. This is what this is saying. That as we live this out and experience, experientially know the love of God, it, the result is, is that we are filled up with God. Therefore, we become like Him. We're becoming like Him. And He's influencing His church. And, and if it's love that is the context here, what will be the expression of His indwelling, His, His filling, is that we will then love like He loves. 1 John 4, let's just listen to this, 4.12. This, this does fit this. This is fascinating. Um, listen to 4.12. He says, No one has seen God at any time. He's invisible. If we love one another, that's practical, I can see that. God abides in us. The invisible God ab- abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In other words, when we love, the invisible God who lives inside us makes himself known. And when we love, we give a we give an manifestation of him. That's the church. Jew and Gentile, remember the context. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, together. There's no ethnicity, there's no division. There's only one in Christ. One people in Christ. And this love permeates. This, this is the more the mortar that holds the bricks together. Each of us are bricks. We're held together by the love of God. And as we, think of this, as you and I grow in the experiential love of Christ, we're growing more like Christ. And if you have two people going up, growing closer to Christ, we go closer to who? To each other. That's why disunity is such a blasphemous event for the church of Christ. This, 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 this fullness of God in us conforms us to the image of Him. It conforms us to the image of His Son. You find that in Colossians 3.10, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We, we looking as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are transformed into the very glory, to glory, to glory. Okay? Well, if you have a whole body being conformed to the glory of God and the likeness of God, think how glorious that becomes, you know. And how do, we, how do you know I'm more like God? Because I'm more loving. 
New Testament style loving, self-sacrifice, lay down your life love. Not go and be warmed and be filled, but more like the Good Samaritan who loved the neighbor, the Good Samaritan. You see, so this is glorious. This is what Paul's praying for. He wants the church to experience God. He wants the church to experience God. It's amazing. I'm afraid a lot of places that they're not interested in that. I can't think of anything I'm, not, I'm more interested in, frankly. To know God, to taste Him more. I want that, and I, and, and I want that with the saints. I want that with you, because we do this together. With, with all the saints, we're growing in this. So let's pray like Paul does. If you're in chapter 3, just finish with the conclusion. He, he gives such confidence based on what he said here, 20 and 21. It's, it's uh, his benediction of sorts. But notice what he says. As he just stunned me with what we just ended up in. He says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So even if I'm limited in my vocabulary and expression, God's able to go beyond that. And notice in verse 20, according to the power that works within us. His power that raised Christ from the dead. His power who's the indwelling Holy Spirit. His power which is infinite will accomplish these things. So if you and I pray in this way, do you think God will answer that? You better hang on to your hat. Right? Let's do that. Can we dare to do that? Pray like Ephesians for each other? We don't want to just go through the moat roshans, do we? We don't want to be like everything else around here. We want to, we want to be set afire by, the, by God. Look at what he says. 21, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the three requests... Strengthened with power in 16. Able to comprehend the breadth of love in 18. And then to know experientially the love of Christ in 19. If we pray those things, then I believe that God will bring the results afterward. So let's pray that way for each other. And let's pray now. Okay? Thanks for listening. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Lord. I thank You for the incredible truths that are beyond me, my, my, my mind. I just thank You for Your amazing love and grace. Help us, Lord, to pray this way and to live this out. I pray for, for these Your people here to be strengthened with the power of the Spirit that Christ may be at home because our faith is strengthened. And as we are grounded in Your love, Father, I ask that You give us the strength to have a comprehension of the greatness of this love. And I pray, Father, You then would apply it to our hearts and give us an experiential knowledge of Your love, which goes beyond any knowledge, because we want to be filled with all the fullness of God. And we believe the benediction here, Father, that you're able to do far more abundantly 
all that we can ask or think. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.